Today, again, if you excuse me, I would like to do something even more than two days ago, very classical, a little bit boring with long quotes. I would like to approach this eternal Althusserian topic of ideological state apparatuses as the material existence of an ideology. And then I will try to show where Althusser falls short a little bit and how we can go on. From Althusser, I will pass to late Kant, Kantian anthropology, what he calls anthropology, which I agree here with Michel Foucault, is maybe the most subversive aspect of Kantian philosophy. You will see why. And from then on, I will go into some <coughs> concluding remarks about the status of subject, subjectivity, and so on and so on, with special view on today's political situation. So let me begin. You know that Louis Althusser's theory of ideology, uh, <coughs> the late one, the earlier one is another point, has two aspects. One is ideological state apparatuses, the basic point of Louis Althusser being that when traditional Marxists are talking about try to be materialists, that they nonetheless are still idealists in the sense that they miss the proper materiality of ideology. For example, a traditional Marxist, when he deals with a religious edifice, he will, of course, try to ground a religion in economic, social circumstances, power relations. He will try to show how an abstract idea of salvation, guilt, whatever, uh, is rooted in concrete historical circumstances. On the one hand, uh, uh, exploitation, religion as legitimization of power relations. On the other hand, utopian hopes. And here already, I'm tempted to, I develop this in my old books, to shift a little bit the accent. Uh, uh, what fascinates me fascinated me always is, I mean, everyone knows the story of decay, how some original, authentic experience, artistic, spiritual, whatever, gets corrupted, gets instrumentalized as ideology to legitimize some power relations, whatever. But what always fascinated me much more, and Althusser all the time, Louis Althusser saw this, is the opposite direction of how something which clearly is a fake, consciously manipulated, can catch on and become something quite authentic. And if there is someone here from Mexico, I hope that he will agree with me. In, if not, he better shut up. <laughs> that, you know, wasn't there in Mexico already in the late 16th century, that Virgin of Guadalupe or whatever, Virgin Mary, appearing as black virgin. I think this is exactly the moment when Christianity will, which till that point was clearly just a, an instrument of Spanish oppression, blah, blah, became also a voice for the articulation of dreams of horrors uh, uh, to which the local indigenous population was submitted the, you know, it, it was no longer from that point on Catholic religion simply just an instrument for oppression. It also became a way 
for the oppressed themselves to articulate those utopias. And one has to say that in contrast to European corruption, mostly. Uh, overall, the image of Catholic Church in Latin America is not as bad as one could have expected. For example, a Latin American friend told me, showed me already years ago, one of the CIA documents which were declassified, you know, this 30-year period uh, from the 60s is the document. Around the turn of the century it was declassified, where a CIA analyst says clearly that, forget about Marxism, the true danger to the US interests is liberation theology and the left wing of the Catholic Church. They perceive this, uh, that as much more dangerous. So again, this moment interests me much more, not how First, it was an authentic experience, then it gets corrupted. But how, and you will see this is what Kant is talking about, surprisingly, as something which, again, can begin as undoubtedly corrupted and so on, or just means of ideological oppression, manipulation, can get, as it were, caught into a different uh, way. So again, back to Althusser, we have with Althusserian theory of ideology, two levels. One is the so-called ideological interpolation, how the fundamental mechanism of ideology is that we are addressed by some big other, of course, not real God, but some imaginary agency of authority, let's call it like this even not power, not state power, it can be pure spiritual authority, which interpolates you into something. But this something usually means ideological identity, like you are, and then Althusser draws too much mileage, I think, tries to, from the homology between this mode of, hey, you, citizen, revolutionary, and so on, and the moment you turn and recognize yourself in the call. You are constituted as subject of ideology. Things, I think, have to be complicated here. First, uh, we have to be very clear, as I repeat often, where are we today with this ideological interpolation? Some people would have claimed, oh, these times are over. Like, you know, till somewhere. 1990, when the Cold War still went on, until that point, we still had ideological interpolation, like society addresses, was addressing us with uh, interpolating us into a certain identity, you, Democrat, socialist, whatever. The idea is that after that, we no longer have it. No, I claim we still are interpolated, but in a much more tricky way. I claim that first, okay, things get really complicated here, but it's not something abstract. I'm referring to a very concrete experience. First, I claim that if you ask, I always repeat this, I know it's not a new point. If you ask yourself, what is society demanding from me today? Of course, it's no longer some direct ideological call. It's something like what I ironically refer to as Western Buddhist, hedonism, you know. Enjoy, be true to yourself, but truly, authentically express yourself, find your true self, uh, something like uh, be authentically what you are. And uh, I claim that 
this ideology is maybe the most dangerous one because it's almost not experienced as ideology at all. But let's not go into that. My second point, and uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, my friend. He somehow disappeared from public view now. Cripps, was it her name? Peter Cripps wrote, not Joseph Cripps. That's why I confused him, because Joseph Cripps was a really good Mozart conductor from 50s, 60s, and this guy is his nephew, Cripps, okay, K-R-I-P-S. He wrote, I even forgot the title of the book, an excellent book some 15 years ago, where, and I, if you want to know more about this, look at my, I think, metastasis of enjoyment. I think there I go into it. Namely how <coughs> the proper Lacanian counterattack to Althusser should have been that simply Althusser's description of ideological subject of this, of course, it's an imagined process, but even at this formal level that, that uh, Althusser's description is not the correct one that it doesn't work like that, you know, like, hey, you, you turn around, you identify yourself, eh, eh, you are caught. The moment you reply, the moment you recognize yourself in the cult, you are the subject of ideology. Krebs does something wonderful. He says that, uh, he says that we have to imagine a much more refined scenario where, again, even at this abstract level, when you turn around, uh, your first reaction of each of us is hysterical. It's not when you hear, hey, you. It's not, yes, me. But it's something like, why me? What did I do to deserve it? And so on. You know, like, why me? It's this moment of doubt, of hysterical doubt. You are calling me Democrat, woman, husband. Why that? Why am I that? And this is why for Lacan, he is very precise here. Uh, uh, Subjectivity as such is hysterical. And for reasons into which I cannot go now, I develop this widely in my books, I think that here Lacan is totally right against a certain Deleuzean, pseudo-Deleuzean, I have great appreciation for Deleuze theory, which I simplify to the utmost, opposes perversion and hysteria as if Hysteria is the feminine compromise. You know, a hysterical subject is a woman who provokes the master, but beneath this provocation, it's really a call for a stronger master or whatever. Like, a hysteric subject just provokes the master with a demand for a stronger master, while a pervert goes to the end. No, Lacan and already Freud made it very clear that a pervert is a perfect subject that every power, the more authoritarian it is, the more it needs subjects whose libidinal economy is that of a pervert. And we don't have time to go into it now. Just to give you a quick hint, recapitulating all stuff, what is perversion for Lacan? You know, it's not, oh, I'm eating shit of other persons or whatever, tells your dirty imagination. It's, Lacan is here very refined. Perversion is for him a formal subjective position. The beautiful paradox of Lacan is that, sorry for my tasteless nature, I cannot escape it. You, know, uh, you can eat your lover's shit, but you, I don't, but, <laughs> but you are not a pervert. And you can make love in a totally, all the missionary positions you want, no, but you are a pervert. A perversion is a subjective position, which means, as Lacan puts it very precisely, 
You assume the position of an instrument of the other's jouissance, in the sense that, to put it in very simple terms, here I think a Stalinist, true Stalinist communist is a pervert. Not because of horrors they did, but because, you know what's the basic position of a Stalinist? We are just servants of the people, but the catch is we know better than people what people want, and even if you have to force them, you know, we will. This, this idea of the very modesty, I'm nothing in myself, you know, this is the difference, for example, between Stalinist and a, a fascist leader. The fascist leader is openly a leader. A Stalinist leader is not that. A Stalinist leader is always, is always a servant of the people. But, of course, as such, he knows what the people really want and so on. In other words, and that's the big difference between perversion and hysteria, a pervert knows. A hysteric doesn't know. The hysterical position is questioning. The hysterical position is, and this is why, and you know why I like here Freud and Lacan? Because here they are effectively much more feminists. You know, behind this apparently critical celebration of perversion against uh, hysteria, it's a hidden anti-feminist. I mean, I'm well aware, I did my Lacanian homework, that uh, uh, although traditionally it appears that women are hysterics and men are perverts, this is a very delicate question. And there are some wonderful analyses of how there is a specific position of feminine perversion, which one of the ideas is a perversion but without a fetish, you know, a more common. But nonetheless, vaguely, it is clear that beneath this celebration of perversion against hysteria, which is compromise and so on, is precisely secret reassertion of male dominance. You know, it's like we men are true revolutionaries, we go to the end, while Pervert women just play games, provoke the master, and so on and so on. First, so that's the first thing. I think that the hysterical position is the one of questioning. But then here things get really interesting. Questioning what? Questioning what I am. Here, you know, the, when Lacan, this is so important that I repeat it all the time. When Lacan says, oh, the object of desire is originally missing, this is not the stupid idea of how, you know, we never know what we want, we search for a true object. No, the object which is originally missing is me, myself. That is to say, what am I for the gaze of the other? That's the original question of desire. Here, although I think Lacan did a much better job, but as a strategic compromise with the enemy, here, you can maybe read a little, you are allowed from my Stalinist censorship position, to look a little bit into Jean, Jean Laplanche's essays on otherness, where he develops nicely this idea, which is a very simple one, basically, but I think convincing, that uh, how does subjectivity emerge, if we put it in this outright naive dimensions? Imagine a small child. He feels that he or she, that he, she is something for the others, mother, father, brothers, and so on. And here already we could have gone into all these perverse classifications, like my favorite stupidity is one of a Slovene football player 
who, after scoring a key goal, you know, all in tears, uh, gave his thanks on a TV interview and said something wonderful, deeply Hegelian. He said, I want to express my gratitude to my parents, especially to my mother and father. You know, like, as if there are some mysterious more parents, but, you know. And I think he knew what is object A. Object A is precisely that more, you know, a parent which is neither father nor mother, you know. I will not repeat here all that stuff, but that's why one should read. Uh, this is a wonderful topic, I claim. All these paradoxes of classification, like I think uh, half a year ago I already spoken about Kierkegaard in, I forgot which text, fuck it. Uh, he, he refers ironically to a famous classification of some Danish humor writer where he says all people can be divided, all humanity, into officers, housemates, and chimney sweepers. Now, it may sound an absurdity, but I think you can immediately see that there is a logic in it. Officer, typical male subjectivity, housewife, serving feminine subjectivity, and the key point is that you have to have three always, you know. And you can imagine, now let's see if you are able to follow my really, really dirty mind. <laughs> you know what's the dirtiest association that I get here? Of course, the officer is fucking uh, housemate, but then they didn't have a condom, so did you guess it? A chimney sweeper comes and, okay, <laughs> cleans it. My God, think dirty a little bit. No, no but seriously, uh, this gets us into much more seriously complex matters of why even in the domain of the class struggle, you know, you never have ruling class, the oppressed class. There must be three. Without the third element, there is no class struggle. We, or as Lacan put it somewhere, the original triad is not one, two, three. It's one plus one plus object A plus this supplement, which is one, not even one, and so on and so on. But OK, let's uh, forget that and go back to Nanda, yeah, to this, what is subjectivity? So again, Laplanche's idea is this one. I am, as a small kid, confronted with parents, sisters, brothers, and I know, already at an elementary level, that I feel, experience that others are playing some libidinal games with me. Mother is using me in her manipulations against the father and vice versa and so on. Like, I am the focal point, libidinal investment of others. But of course, I don't know what this identity is. And this gives rise to the original hysterical question. What I know that I am something for the others, but I can't see what. And of course, now, the next crucial step is, of course, that the parents also don't know it. That, and this is for uh, Lacan, and Laplanche develops this nicely. The original experience of the unconscious is when the child knows that, as Hegel put it nicely, what I always quote, you know, that the secrets of the Egyptians were the secrets for the Egyptians also themselves, that uh, it's not just that, uh, that uh, parents, others are playing some games with me and I just cannot penetrate them. No, the crucial discovery 
And this is maybe the primordial form of what Lacan calls symbolic castration, is that the other also doesn't know. When you feel this, that you know the other, that you experience how your parents literally don't know what they are talking, in the sense that they are themselves caught in their own game. So again, the idea is that this is the primordial hysterical experience, and then perversion is precisely the way out. It's not more primordial. The pervert position is I know. The other doesn't know, but I know. I know perfectly what the other wants, and even if I have, even if I have to kill him, I will deliver him, uh, save him, or whatever. So uh, again, uh, this tension which creeps that guy uh, uh, wonderfully developed. This idea that the pre when I got an interpolation, my first reaction as subject, and this reaction constitutes me as subject, is, my God, what do they want from me? You know, that you automatically feel guilty. You know, like this is Altisser's story, how the policeman calls you, hey, you. The moment yeah. you turn towards him, you already identify yourself as subject of law. But Kriegs adds here that no, even at an abstract level, this is not the whole story. The story is that when the policeman calls you, oh, hey, you, your reaction is, what did I do wrong? Why me? And then that you assume identity, I am citizen, whatever, to escape this anxiety, this deadlock. You see that between the ideological call, hey, you, and my identification, there has to be this moment of uncertainty, of anxiety. So that again, the, and of course, it can be shown, I claim that this is what goes missing with Althusser. He talks in his great classical text, Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses, as if this is a direct closed loop, like I directly recognize myself in it. No, perverts do it maybe, but we don't. Now you will say, but why do we react as guilty? Uh, here is even a nicer paradox developed by Krebs. You will say, no, but some people are able to, ha, yes, me, directly recognize. But these are usually criminals, I claim. Because, you know, we ordinary people, that's a nice paradox, precisely who are not in a formal legal sense guilty, the more you are innocent, the more when the policeman addresses you, uh, the more anxiety explodes. Oh my God, why me? What did I do? If you are really a criminal, you know how to cover it up. Yes, policeman, what did yes, I Yes, like you gladly identify yourself. <laughs> Different logic. Okay, but let's go on. So this is, now I'm getting a little more refined, hope so. This is the first problem I claim with Altisser. He doesn't get the refinement of the project of, sorry, process of subjectivization. The counterpoint to this is the other one. The other level of Althusserian theory of ideology is ideological state apparatuses. As I already said, all this machinery of, uh, of you know, church, uh, police, uh, all the different apparatuses which discipline us, which train us, and so on and so on. Uh, what Althusser misses here, I claim, is what? He all the time insists on the materiality of this process. 
But I claim what he misses is precisely what Lacan calls the materiality of the signifier as such. He all the time has to vulgarize materiality into, uh, uh, incidentally, uh, uh, my megalomania, which Secret Service is paying, you know. Yesterday, we had such a nice joke. He's really a normal guy privately to boast. I was for three hours uh, exchanging dirty jokes, mostly with Julian Assange, no? And then my wife was with me doing an interview with him, no? And at a certain point, uh, her, my wife's recording machine broke down. And you know what was our immediate reaction? No problem, we just called the British police. They have better transcripts than us. <laughs> okay, so, sorry, let me go on. So, uh, uh, that this, in, this eternal insistence, Kautze all the time compulsively repeats, it's her material, material, he precisely escapes from something, from what is really difficult to think, that we have in the big other, in what Lacan calls the symbolic machine, we have an order which is not material in the usual sense, but which nonetheless functions as an external, in this sense, material machine. This weird materiality of the signifier. How does this work? Let me quote you now a passage from Althusser's text. This is late Althusser, uh, Philosophy of the Encounter is the book, published by Verso in 2006, late Althusser's manuscripts. Uh, here is how Althusser answers the question, what distinguishes state from other social apparatuses? And here is the first of my long, boring quotes. Uh, what distinguishes them is that, quote, everything that operates in it, in the state, and in its, the state's name, whether the political apparatus or the ideological apparatus is silently buttressed by the existence and presence of the public armed physical force. That this force is not fully visible or actively employed, that it very often intervenes only intermittently or remains hidden and invisible, all this is simply one further form of its existence and action. One had to make a show of one's force so as not to have to make use of it. It suffice, suffices to deploy one's military force to achieve by intimidation results that would normally have been achieved by sending it into action. We may go further and say that one can also not make a show of one's force so as not to have to make use of it. When threats of brute force or the force of law subject the authors in a given situation to obvious pressure, there is no longer any need to make a show of this force. There may be more to be gained from hiding it. The army tanks that were stationed under the trees of Rambouillet Forest, a forest in the suburbs of Paris, in May 1968 are an example. They played, by virtue of their absence, a decisive role in quelling the 68 riots in Paris. End of quote. The first thing to note here is, and I think Althusser is not attentive enough to it, is the radical difference between the two levels, the two examples that he uses. First, the idea is how can you avoid the use of direct, brutal, real force. The first thing to do 
every politician, dictator knows it, is to make a show of your force. And maybe if this just spectacle, fascinating, brutal display of force is effective enough, you don't have to use it. Like, I don't know, you know, when there is a threat of demonstration, this is the standard procedure. You send police, uh, police cars or maybe even tanks along, you parade them along the main boulevards of a city and the idea is we will warn them in advance. Uh, then something uh, much more refined happens. Uh, the threat works when people already, the point is of course that people must suspect that you are able to employ, mobilize some force. The most effective threat can be not to display any force, but just to keep it as a threat. And the more it is unseen, the more it grows as some kind of spectral presence. And Althusser's point, and it's true, although I was young then, I was in Paris and I remember this rumor when there were 68 clashes, that there are tens of thousands of military in Rambouillet forest with tanks ready there. Nobody has seen them, but you know, precisely as such, they were much more threatening than effectively than effectively doing it, than effectively displaying their force. So the first thing I want to say here is that uh, 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 the first level would have been, let's say, imaginary. That is to say, instead of really using police force, I make a show of it, you know, police parades in the city. You can also bluff at this level. You just send some elite units and you just pretend. To, but nonetheless, you show it, hoping that the spectacle, not using it, of showing it will scare people and so on. But the second level is the properly symbolic one, where the very absence of display you know, when people expect for you to show force, of course, it's a risky procedure because people may call your bluff and then you, they see you have nothing. But quite often it works that you don't display the force and this makes the potential display of force even all the more uh, ominous. And I claim that what Althusser misses is this, the true dimension of his own example. What Althusser is right to insist how not even a display of force can work in the same way as the real use of force can scare people, but how, of course, against the background of expectation of your use of force that not displaying any force, just this absolutely ominous silence, you know, like, you know, this scene in many war movies is the elementary strategy you expect the enemy to attack and then it's just mist and silence. No, maybe you hear some sounds and so on, but nothing. And this is usually much more threatening than actually seeing the enemy soldiers, you know. The moment you see them, it's always a kind of a relief, you know. Oh my God, look, I see them, I know who they are, part of reality and so on. Uh, Althusser here uh, refers to a nice example. He compares and this is an intelligent parallel between this and the way he refers here to a book by Perry Anderson, where Perry Anderson uh, uh, 
talks about how gold reserves of the central banks function in our societies. The whole economy, the way it functions, needs this illusion that ultimately, at least, I don't know how it is today, in older times, that somehow, you know, it's all ultimately supported, held up by gold bank reserves. The point is that you don't have to even to see to take. It's just enough that everyone accepts that there are bank reserves. Uh, uh, and, uh, but uh, so again, his idea is that it's the same with secret, uh, with these hidden military forces which sustain the rule of law. It's enough the awareness that they are there. But here I claim things get problematic. <clears throat> First, uh, if we take precisely this example of gold reserves, yes, they are there hidden. But what we all know, and that's the mystery, is that it's not only, I hope you will get the point, and I'm blaming me if I sound confused, it's not only that they work, gold reserves, also or even if they are not put to use. I claim they work only insofar as they are not put to use. The moment the state would have actively to intervene with gold reserves, usually everything crashes because you never have enough of it and so on and so on. So this is, I think, a wonderful example of what Lacan calls he plays in his anxiety seminar of this uh, uh, ambiguity of toute puissance, omnipotence, and toute impuissance, uh, all in potency. That omnipotence, it's always only a potential threat. The moment you actualize it, it's over. You see, what Althusser, again, doesn't get is that he is right that you don't have to show brutally your force, that it works good even if you don't show it, don't not even show it. What he doesn't get is that it only works in this way. The moment, imagine a, a, a really tense situation where those in power decide to really fully use the force against this, their own population. I don't imagine even one example where it really worked. It's usually the point of impotence. It's too much. First, uh, in a crazy way, it diminishes the threat. Because, you know, again, the threat functions as the spectral real precisely insofar as it remains invisible. The moment you see it, it's part of reality. It's say, oh, it's only those guys, and so on, and so on. The threat diminishes. So, and I claim, again, it's the same with gold reserves. They, you know what's the nice paradox of gold reserves? I read one book about social paradoxes which goes into this. Let's imagine a situation where there would have been something like in James Bond Goldfinger. Let's say they are no longer there, but let's say that almost they are not, I know. Almost all gold reserves are in Fort Knox. Let's say some terrorist or whoever, although I would have supported them here, would explode an atomic bomb in Fort Knox, rendered all the gold there unusable for, I don't know, hundreds of years. Unusable in the simple sense that because of radiation, nobody can get close to it. But if people would have agreed that this continues to function, 
as a reference, although totally without use, it would still have functioned. You see, this is what interests me, a power which works, but only as a threat. The moment it actualizes itself, it no longer works. And in last years, I've often used also the example of paternal authority. You know, a true father never beats you. A true father just threatens you. And the most effective threat is not even shouting, threatening to beat you, but just a kind of a cold gaze or whatever, you know. Because uh, an intelligent father is deeply aware that the moment he really beats you, it can hurt, but it's basically an admission of impotence, you know. A true authority doesn't have to beat you. The moment you beat your son, you are lost, I claim. Lost in the sense that, not in the sense that morally lost for beating the son, what do I care, children are evil in body. I know, but what, I, what I'm saying is that uh, uh, you lose your authority, precisely. No, and you can see this. I had a conflict with whom? I forgot. I think with Avital Ronell and Judith Butler once here years ago, when I claimed that uh, Kafka's letter to his father, they claimed it's horrible, the paternal authority. I claim no, and I challenge you to do it. Read Kafka's famous letter to his father. The reproach is not you are too terrorizing. No, the reproach is you are a ridiculous fake. It's a big call, be a proper authority. He's ridiculing the father for not being a proper authority. So, okay, uh, let's go on. So what I'm claiming here is that, uh, you know, is that the same goes for, let me, now let's take an apparent direct use of brutal force, which probably is the first one which explodes in your mind. The famous, my God, now it's almost 30 years of what, Tiananmen, China. It's absolutely crucial, I think, that it was done in this spectral way during the night, absolutely no traces and so on. They were very intelligent to do it. I think it was not just that, you know, it would have been a little bit awkward for them to have a communist, formerly people's regime smashing, killing their citizens in hundreds with tanks. It's that precisely in this way, not to, <clears throat> not to allowing it to enter ordinary reality, something happened during the night, no one knows what, and so on. They did it very intelligently, I think. It's simply, it's, it has a pure spectral identity, in the sense of everyone knows something horrible happened there. But no one knows what happened. It's an absolute uh, blackout and so on. And here you can play wonderful games. For example, my friend Van Kui, whom I met, showed me a photo. It's a wonderful one. I like this type of provocation. So they are cheap provocations. Do you know that in 48, 49, when communists were winning, formally they played political games, their demand against Kuomintang was that Kuomintang wants to rule alone as a party. And they claimed we communists stand, stand not only for ourselves, but for all other parties. So Mao, one of Mao's slogans, which communists displayed in their demonstrations is 48, was no to one party rule, you know, of Kuomintang. So a dissident, a friend of Wang Kui did something. He walked along. Uh, 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 that, what is it, Tiananmen, the big square, with a large poster 
no to one party rule and then beneath Mao Zedong, quote. <laughs> he disappeared immediately, they didn't hear of it. Just a quote from, Ma from Mao Zedong, my God, you know. Uh, uh, okay, so Mendes, let me go on. So what I want to say is that uh, 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 what, again, Althusser doesn't see is this, uh, this, what is the status of this threat of real power? It is not only symbolic, it is real, but it's a purely virtual real, it's not reality. He doesn't see that precisely it not only works even if it is absent, but it works only if it's not fully actualized. The moment the state fully strikes against its own people, usually it falls apart. For example, Ceausescu tried it in Romania. Total mobilization and so on, everything fell apart and so on and so on. And I think this is what so-called Italian regimes are well aware of. You see, this is a nice example of the power of appearances. I always emphasize this against the usual stupid common sense, which is uh, in the West, we were manipulated. Appearances, while under communist totalitarianism, it was just the brutal force. No, I claim communist regimes were, were brutal, killing millions, blah, blah. But at the same time, they were much more clinging to appearances. They behaved as if, if, you, if appearances disintegrate a little bit, everything will, will fall apart. Precisely, again, as totalitarian, they feared, they cling, they did cling much more to, to, uh, to appearances. I think I can tell you an old story which I used in my, some of my old books. I remember when I was member of a small half-dissident journal, we published a book, no, sorry, a poem by some stupid poet where there was one line which vaguely, vaguely, if you read it in a very paranoiac way, uh, hinted at something that the true fathers of our freedom are not communists, whatever, but not in this direct way. There was an extraordinary session of the Cultural Committee of the Communist Party. They reacted in a total panic. And here I can understand what, and I take it quite seriously, not just as a sarcastic joke, what I think Josef Brodsky says, that nowhere in... No, at no point in human history did they appreci uh, uh, appreciate poetry as much as in Stalinist times, you know. <laughs> it was only there for one wrong word they were ready to kill and so on. Can you imagine this? The communist state, whole police apparatus and so on, they were thrown into a panic for one short poem in one small city, like 400 copies, cultural magazine, which no one read. They even didn't notice that by making a special session of cultural committee, they brought the danger. Then all the people started to talk about it, photocopies started circling. If they were to do nothing, nothing would have happened. Nobody would have even noticed it, no? Uh, so again, the big enigma of Stalinism is this uh, total, cling, total fear of losing face of uh, disintegration of appearances. And it's wonderful in China how this still works. For example, Wang Hui also told me that, you know who is the seat of real power in China? Not even Politburo, but 
nine, now there are seven members. It's called Standing Committee of the Politburo. That's it. That's power. Not only is the election of that body totally mysterious, there is absolutely no debate, you know, like even this formal, you know, even under Stalinism. For example, Stalin was proposed to be the next general secretary, and then every communist cell had to debate it. Of course, they all supported it, but this, they went to the motion so that then they could have said, after a wide debate, members of the party proposed Stalin. No, it's absolutely, with all my provisors, it's absolutely, not only absolutely, it's like this. Okay, you have the every four years, the Congress, whatever, fuck it, Communist Party, which is in itself, um, Chinese are really masters of this distinction missed by Althusser. Did I tell you, I wrote about it, uh, a wonderful detail. Do you know that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't exist legally? A wonderful story I was told in China. A dissident went to a court, I like these naive gestures, went to a court denouncing Communist Party for crimes in the Great Leap Forward and so on for killing millions of people. After two, three months, she got an answer, which was, sorry, but we didn't find any organization legally enrolled in, I mean, with legal, that fits the name Chinese Communist Party. It literally doesn't exist. That is to say, of course it exists, but like, literally it's prohibited to ask, you know, with all other organizations, you have all these usual bureaucratic communist details, you know. You have to enroll, register properly, blah, blah, blah. Communist party doesn't exist. And especially for this uh, standing committee of the Politburo, it's like this. Every four years, Congress of the Communist Party, the last day, this is, of course, the orgasmic final moment. Everyone is waiting for it. Seven new members of the standing committee are presented to the people. And of course, then there is a formal vote, but it's always absolutely a unanimous vote. But you are, if you raise the question, okay, who has chosen them? It's a pro prohibited question. Okay, they do it in a Chinese style. They say it's very impolite to, to ask this question and so on. You know, it's, uh, of course, everyone knows that there are, must be immense behind the stage factional struggles and so on, but it's totally, totally out of public view. Out of nowhere, the seven are presented. And now I come to that mystical moment of appearances. I wonder if you noticed it. I didn't. I only noticed it after my attention was drawn to it. How they are always, if you look at them, well looking with black, thick hair. This absolute order, they are formally forbidden to appear weak. They have to tan their skin. If they are losing hair, they get transplants and so on and so on. And you know, this is the, the mystery of appearances. Of course, everybody knows, my God, they cannot really look so good. They are guys, 70, some of them even 80 years old, but they know that appearances matter. And I think I already told you once uh, this other wonderful anecdote that I read about Soviet Union. Did you wonder if you look at old movie, old documentaries, uh, reels, news, why in October and especially 1st of May military parades on the Red Square in the, Red Square in the time of Soviet Union, why it never rained? 
because uh, they used some special, very poisonous, but who cares if then people are poisoned, gases which they spread above Moscow to prevent cloud formations and so on and so on, because they were afraid that if a storm or a rain ruins the parade, people will somehow experience this as nature mocking the communist rule limit of the party power. So it was absolutely necessary that, you know, it has to go the way it does. So again, don't underestimate the force of appearances. But back to Altisser. <coughs> and here, but I, I have a certain respect for this attitude, because I don't have time to go into it now. But what is happening now is that those in power, except in China and so on, uh, no longer function like that. Like, as already, I think, improvised ones in front of you, take someone like, uh, for example, in the United States, I met recently, and I don't boast about it, I don't agree with him, with him politically, he is way too naive, but Oliver Stone, and he asked me the usual narcissist artistic question, <laughs> which of my movies do you really like? <laughs> I told him, when we take power, my usual answer, you will get your re-education camp for this type of questions. No, But the point is that I told him Nixon. I told him, frankly, I don't like your big iconic movies because they're boring. They all take the same boring Oedipal story. You know, Wall Street. Badfather Michael Douglas, who is, who, is, who is incidentally the only interesting guy in the movie, no? Against Martin Sheen's his own father played, which is the good father, even Platoon, you, a couple of his films, he's really obsessed by this struggle between good and bad father and the good father winning, no? But you know what I like in Nixon? He didn't fall into this simple Nixon phobia. First, every authentic American leftist will tell you, don't underestimate Nixon. If you measure progressive character of a president by how much money, what percentage and so on, was given to welfare, to unemployed, to free education. You know that Nixon is, Richard Nixon is by far the most progressive American president. Because of economic crisis, although I like him much more as a person, already uh, Jimmy Carter had to start reducing it. Point two, Nixon nonetheless did a trip to China for which he was never forgiven by the radical American right, and so on and so on. So, you know, I never bought that bullshit, all the president's men, you know, like two ordinary, this is the worst capitalist propaganda, movies like all the president's men, because they appear critical. Oh my God, even our president is corrupted. But the true message of the film is, of course, what a great country we are. Two ordinary guys can overthrow the mightiest men in the world. No, I say, Sorry, impolite again. I say, fuck you here, you know. Like, uh, 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 it's crucial that a strong part of American establishment had to, had to endorse this. Let Nixon draw. And I, again, uh, and yes, why then do I like, I think, Anthony Hopkins plays Nixon? Because he consciously, here Oliver Stone was not totally stupid, he presents Nixon as the last genuinely tragic Oedipal, let's call it like this, president. He really wanted greatness, it fell down, it was a tra he was a crook, of course, but nonetheless, but with Reagan, Carter is complicated, transitory for now, with Reagan and on, we have a totally different function of a kind of a Teflon presidency where 
even if Reagan tried to be, you know, if we have already self-ironic presidents who make fun of themselves and so on. For example, I remember I saw it, one of Reagan's press conferences where, this was one of the few, then he stopped giving them, because he appeared too stupid, but uh, uh, it was uh, a journalist asked him a complicated economic question, and he said, why are you asking me this question? You know that I'm too stupid to answer you without preparation. You know, this open mocking his own limitation. Something broke down with dignity. And I think Clinton played the same game, not to mention Bush and so on. It's a kind of very obscene, open display of stupidity. And I think then Berlusconi in Europe plays the same and so on. And I don't think there is anything great democratic in it, no? I think it's a much more perverse functioning. I'm almost I'm tempted to say for the Chinese approach, no? Show us some respect by at least appearing, not the bullshit that you really are, but make an effort to look with some dignity, whatever, no? Sorry, so let me go on. So you see, on the one hand, I tried to develop, now back to Altissere, how he doesn't see that uh, more complex process of subjectivization. On the other hand, with regard to material state apparatuses, I claim, what again he doesn't see is that what he tries to capture as, this is the real me, you know, this is the real me, you know, oh my God. I came to this reversal. Uh, uh, I used in one book this, you know, how my double is ordered. I, I think, I may be wrong, that the first story in the second year of Alfred Hitchcock presents that early black and white uh, TV shows, it really, it shocked even me because I didn't know it. I'm sorry for a little, it's a story, the woman, I think it play, is played by Jessica Tandy, you know, the mother from Hitchcock's birth. But she's a good actress. She also played in the original version of Samuel Beckett's Not I. She played the mouth, no? And she plays a lone, desperate spinster who is obsessed by a, how do you call this, ventriloquist with a dummy. And uh, she goes every evening to his performance. And when it is the last performance, she cannot restrain herself. She goes up on stage and addresses him, touching him here, hey, like offering herself to him. And then comes the shock. I was shocked. You know what you discover? That the true dummy was the real large person. Out of the small dummy, uh, uh, a midget, a dwarf steps out. So that it was the other way around, you see. And it is something terrifying about it. So that, you know, what you thought was dead was alive. What you thought was alive was dead. <laughs> Okay, uh, that was my experience. Like, the real me is that squeaking voice, squeezing voice that, that, that was there. But, okay, back to it. So, on the one hand, we have that short card with sub subjectivization. Uh, on the other hand, we have what does Altisser miss? You saw what he tries to circumscribe, discern as the materiality of ideology, that it's precisely not the material materiality. It's what Lacan calls the materiality of signifier, of a letter, you can cut it into small pieces, it remains the letter it is, and so on. So his idea being of Lacan, that of course Lacan doesn't mean here 
material materiality in the sense you touch it, but materiality in the sense of a blind machine-like order. And this is the Lacanian big other. It's, as it were, the materiality of the ideal order itself. And this, I think, is always in critique of idealism, even theology, the most subversive moment, not to prove that everything is matter, but to, to prove that even what we perceive as God functions like mechanical matter. That's why, as I already repeated here often, my favorite theologist is Nicolas Malbranche. You know what he does? He elaborates the notion of mercy, but a kind of literally materialist notion of mercy. Sorry for repeating myself, but his idea is this one. Of course, he is uh, uh, on the line of Jansenism, which means for him, uh, grace has nothing to do with mercy. You know, no, sorry, with uh, virtue. You can be a good guy doing wonderful things, but you may be not blessed by mercy, you will burn in hell. Or you can murder, kill, poison, whatever. You are touched by mercy, you are redeemed. Uh, uh, incidentally, do you know that French communists referred openly to, uh, to Malbranche in their critique of bourgeois ideology? For them, virtue meant small bourgeois values. And their idea was, you can be an honest small bourgeois caring for the poor people, but if you don't, are not touched by mercy, by the mercy of having insight into Communist Party role and so on, you are lost and so on. No? So, but what I want to say is this, that then Malbranche, I'm literally quoting him almost, okay, but my point is I'm not inventing, this is his example. He says, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, you know it, uh, imagine two farmers. One works diligently all the time on his field, the other one nearby is a lazy guy, makes throws on some seed, but nothing really. But then it can happen because of contingent natural processes that the bad farmer lazy gets all the rain, the good one gets none. So that the bad one will get some harvest, the good one nothing. And you know what he says? He said exactly the same is with divine grace. It's that God is just in a totally contingent way throwing it around. Absolutely nothing to do with our virtues and so on. <clears throat> but incidentally, I think even from the religious standpoint, this is the only correct way. Because as every good Protestant, and you know Protestants as a rule believe in predestination, you know why this is good? Because if you think that your good works, good deeds, will bring you salvation, uh, it, it becomes a commercial trans, uh, transaction, you know. Basically, the dealing is, oh, I may be damned, but let's make a transaction. If I do a little bit of a good work, maybe I will get grace, you know. It's no longer a pure ethical act. The only good act is when you say, I will do what I do without counting that this will affect in any way my salvation. That precisely predestination, far from sabotaging your ethical achievement, is opening the only true space for for, for ethical achievement. But okay, so again, you see, this is what I find so subversive in Malbranche. He shows how even the spiritual domain of grace 
functions like mechanical materialism, if you want, like this. No? And that's the point of Lacan, when Lacan speaks about the autonomy of the signifier. It doesn't mean that uh, these words printed here materially are autonomous. It means that uh, the symbolic system network on which we rely functions in a materialist way on its own but precisely as the ideal order. Of course, the symbolic order is an ideal order. It's not reality, but as such, it can function in a materialist way. Mater and this, again, this point, I claim, is missed by Althusser. Uh, who elaborated? Sorry, let's see where we are. Another 10 minutes, Mr. Uh, looks bad. OK, OK. Who? Uh, uh, no, okay, I will then just try to recapitulate what I'm saying. Uh, first, uh, I really advise you to read this Kant. For a long time, Immanuel Kant, and I'm not now changing the terrain, because this materiality of the signifier in tradition, philosophical, our Western tradition, I think it's Kant's late writing from 1798, anthropology from a pragmatic point of view which develops it in detail. You can get it it's in one of those, uh, Cambridge or Oxford, you know, edition with many other texts. It's immensely readable. It's, it's excellent. Uh, uh, Kant's problem is what? First, in his critique of pure reason, he developed pure ethical structure and with all this ethical rigorism. It only counts as an ethical act if it's done for the sake of duty, not from some, for some pathological profit, and so on and so on. So. We have critique of pure, we have ethics. Then, under the pretext of just anthropology, anthropology is for Kant ethics, but like applied to real empirical life, to humans as empirical objects. How does it function there? My God, I'm, I'm getting tired of this science of the big other, <laughs> whatever, no? <laughs> Although uh, things happen, I had, maybe someone did it, but they claimed that I was, when I was in high school, I was in a cinematheque in Ljubljana, Slovenia, and we were watching a horror movie, and exactly at midnight, when some ghosts were supposed to appear, it was also midnight in real time, all the lights went out and so on, you know, and, uh, okay, but let's stop. Uh, what I'm saying is that, why is this so mysterious? Because Michel Foucault, who in his introduction to the French translation of Kant's anthropology, he was the first to emphasize the key position of this text. He is too short. He simply uses it as a proof that Kant is caught into what he calls already in his The Order of Think, the transcendental empirical duality doublet. You know how Kant is forced to observe human beings from two perspectives as transcendental, pure, free subjects, and as empirical, natural entities. And how Kant is not able to bring the two together. So that Kant has to oscillate between the two without being able to really reduce one to the other. Of course, Kant is not a naturalist, so he is forbidden to translate transcendental subject into empirical history, how it emerged out of nature. But also, 
the opposite one. Like, Kant admitted that we are caught in concrete social circumstances. You cannot develop this out of pure practical reason, out of pure morality. But Foucault remains at this level, just tension between transcendental and empirical. But what Foucault doesn't get is that the domain that Kant develops here in anthropology is, of course, it's not pure reason. It's empirical circumstances. But it's also not empirical in the sense of facts. It's precisely what we today would have called performative dimension of social interaction. Kant is obsessed, he, he develops his, his detail by the idea that although at a transcendental level you are free as a non-empirical transcendental nominal, nominal simply means not submitted to empirical material causality fact. But nonetheless that empirically in social life for us to become moral you so, social rules adequate condition you to this. But here Kant knows better than Althusser that these social rules are not simply empirical rules. He, Kant, is not talking simply about empirical training. He talks precisely about moral appearance. He endorses fully something that in his pure ethics should be prohibited. For example, one in the subdivisions of his anthropology, subchapters, is called on permissible moral appearance, shine appearance. What Kant is developing in all possible ways is that precisely this motive that Althusser repeats all the time following Pascal, that even if you are like from strict morality, do you have the right to pretend that you are honest even or moral even if you are not? The traditional position would have been this is the most disgusting thing. You just pretend to be moral. But Kant again and again tries to develop how the only way to morality is that you begin by acting as if you are moral. And then there is a hope that you will fall into your own trap. Let me just read you nonetheless a little bit of Kant here. On the whole, the more civilized human beings are, the more they are actors. They adopt the illusion of affections, of respect for others, of modesty, and of unselfishness without deceiving anyone at all. Because it is understood by everyone that nothing is meant sincerely by this. And it is also very good that this happens in the world. For when human beings play these roles, eventually the virtues whose illusion they have merely affected will gradually really be aroused and merge into the disposition. To deceive the deceiver in ourselves, the inclinations, is a return again to obedience under the law of virtue and is not a deception but rather a laudable illusion or cheating, tausung of ourselves. In order to save virtue, or at least lead the human being to it, nature has wisely implanted into us humans the tendency to willingly allow ourselves to be deceived. 
good honorable decorum is an external appearance that instills respect for others and so on and so on. So, okay, I will not go to that, but you see what Kant is here wonderfully saying, that, that the logic of morality is you should begin by deceiving others in the sense of I am really evil, but to deceive you that I'm, can, that I'm kind, I act like that, and then ultimately, without even knowing, the deceiver deceives himself. I become moral, but uh, uh, so he praises here empty coquetry, gallantry, and so on and so on, endlessly, and uh, what is so interesting here is that Kant is here discovering a domain which is neither, neither the domain of pure inner morality, like looking to inside, or external legality. You know, and to make a jump, this is what I find so problematic, for example, in political correctness. Our, the basic feature of our customs is that we, uh, put it, we, uh, you know, on the one hand, we have things, strict moral orders, what you are ordered to do, like, you know, don't kill, don't lie, whatever, there it's clear. Then we have external legality, like, it's not punishable, not yet, one never knows, <coughs> to directly lie or whatever, but there are things which simply you are not allowed to do. And of course, the space of our freedom is between the two. There are things that you are not allowed to do morally, and there are things that you are legally prohibited to do. But in between, there are things which, although they are not truly moral, they are also not prohibited by the law, cheating a little bit, and so on and so on. So my point is that what Kant does is open up a domain of things, and the whole point is that they have to exist, namely things which only are operative if you are expected to do them without being explicitly ordered to do them. That's the essence of politeness. It doesn't work if you are ordered to do it, like to show gallantry. The whole point is that it shouldn't be experienced as you, a lady and you say, okay, I will help you, but really I would like to, 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 to I don't know, to put my feet so that you would slip down over there. You know, like you have to pretend that I could not have done it, I'm not really forced to do it, but it's expected from me to do it. This domain, I claim, tends to disappear with political correctness. What political correctness tries to do is precisely to directly legalize or moralize this gray domain, no? It's like uh, to legalize in the sense of, I don't know, if I look at you in this way, it can already be harassment or whatever. It somehow, it tries to legalize what precisely has to appear as your politeness, which, again, even if you are expected to obey it, it must appear as if you freely uh, uh, obey it. So again, Kant discovers here a domain which is really 
a subversive one, and I think, but I don't have time to develop it now. I think it works also. Yeah, yeah, I know, we are there. No, no, yeah. I thought you said, I thought you wanted to stop at Yeah, but I lied. What, so, <laughs> what's so strange about it? I lied. <laughs> we got her. <laughs> no, sorry. What I want to say immediately, I'm sorry. What I wanted to say is that uh, uh, also, uh, Kant says here some very interesting thing about uh, domination, servitude, and so on. Where he said that the same goes for domination and servitude. He makes some funny remarks, which may appear only obscenities, but which are very profound ones, about the ambiguity of patriarchal domination. Where he says that when men dominate women, it's expected for women not to simply turn into instruments that you totally surrender your freedom, whatever you know. That there must be always this gray domain in the sense of, okay, I'm your servant, but I'm freely choosing to be your servant or whatever. A weird intermediate domain, uh, a weird intermediate domain emerges here. So again, what Kant sees here is that this uh, Pascal formula, you know, Pascalian formula, bless Pascal, when he says, you know, the famous statement, if you don't believe, act as if you believe, you kneel, pray, and at the end you will believe. That it's a much more complex process. It's not simply you follow an external machine and your spirit will follow. No, it's a much more complex topic of uh, deception and so on. Here, I cannot restrain from referring to one of my books where I developed this, of how I even think that, in a way, Pascal is up to a point wrong here. It can be said that today, and this is how, if you read him really closely, a little bit between the lines, this would have been Hegel's answer to Pascal. That, no, it's not that you don't believe, you follow the ritual, and then maybe you will believe. What if we have the opposite process. You really believe, but you find your belief too oppressive. So then you say, I will start to follow external ritual so that I will be able to say, okay, fuck it, I did my duty of belief, and then this will set me free for my spirit to wander for not experiencing my belief as so oppressive. Where does Hegel enter here? This is how, as I developed in my big fat book, which weighs two pounds, which is why it is called less than nothing, because it certainly doesn't weigh less than nothing, no? <laughs> about Hegel's theory of marriage. There are some hints that he was an old Berlin pervert, no? that his theory is to put it in a Pascalian line of argumentation. You are passionately in love. Well, get married with the lady, make, and then love will get an external ritual, and you will sooner or later get bored by it, and it will give you freedom, and so on. <laughs> so that it's not get married. You know, the traditional version would have been get married and love will emerge. But the ritual functions also in the exactly opposite way. Are you too passionately in love? Well, get married and you will get rid of your love, you know. <laughs> Instead of love, you will get this external ritual which always gives you some freedom. And I think this even works. I spoke with some Japanese friends who told me that how they feel 
Western people are stupid when Western people reproach them for, oh, your power relations are so formalized, you know, like you are not allowed to criticize if you are just an assistant, your professor up there. And they told me, no, precisely this obeying to external circumstances sets free their mind much more than this terrible Western pressure, you know, like be sincere, tell it, and so on. I think that in a way, social ritual in the sense of lying out of politeness can be a very liberating experience. I mean, isn't it, for example, it's not my situation now, but if you are married, isn't it nice to be able to tell to your wife or husband, yeah, 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 I love you, which means, okay, the ritual is satisfied, so fuck off. So, you know, like, <laughs> give me my freedom, you know. And I think you cannot be directly free. You, you have to have this mediation. Okay, I shortened this one a lot, then I had another whole line of thought. I'm sorry, I don't have it, which would have been the crucial one, sorry. About two minutes. No, I'm not ready. I'm Wait, wait, you will wait long. Take a Coke or whatever. <laughs> no, no, seriously, it's a nice point. About, I wanted to go into this, my eternal debate with Badiou, that it, it's, Badiou is here close to Althusser, although in a totally different sense. For him, subject is defined as an exception of fidelity to an event. And for him, evil, or if you betray a cause, is a secondary mode, you know, like, the true subject is fidelity to a cause, love, uh, freedom, science, whatever. Uh, I claim, and I'm here a good Christian, uh, Kierkegaard developed this idea that, no, that the initial constitutive ex experience of subjectivity is boredom, or the scene of, how do you call it, uh, accedia laziness or whatever, you know, that original scene, which is the Althusserian scene. I think the way to trans... Lassitude. Sorry? Lassitude. Yeah, but I think the way to formulate is, I don't take my interpolation seriously, you know, like, because this is why some medieval authors claim that this is the most horrible scene. It's the scene of, you know, it's easy to say I'm evil, I don't know what is good, but this scene means I know what is good, but nonetheless, I don't give them about, you know, like, uh, you are not ready to engage mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. But I think we should not take this as secondary. That would be the way as a Lacanian or Hegelian, I would have put it that. We are what Althusser, sorry, what, but you would have called human animals. Then you get bored. And you need, boredom comes first. Then you invent a cause to get out of bore. What do I mean by this? You have a wonderful, it's an orgy, passage, I don't have time to read it to you now, from Kierkegaard, where he goes into how the whole history of the world, creation, is the story of boredom. God was bored, he created the world. Adam was bored, God created uh, uh, Eve for him. And then, I don't know, Babylonians were bored, they built the tower, you know, and so on and so on. And I think we can do it even now, you know, like in feudalism it gets bored, capitalists start to travel and so on and so on, you know, like... The, the, so, but you see what I'm saying here, that I don't... Uh, but you, and even now, more and more, he emphasizes, he calls this the positive approach, that evil or whatever bad is just a failure, a betrayal of positive 
goodness. I remain here Hegelian. I claim no. I claim that it's only boredom or this axedia, laziness, that creates the space for creativity. This is the nothingness which opens up the space. And I have here a much more detailed development, but you will read it in my next book if you want, on how this changes the whole topic of subjectivity. I claim that the original subjectivity, we are back at Altisher, uh, is not the engaged subjectivity, but it's precisely the disengaged subjectivity, like this axedia, withdrawal. And then you need this empty space of laziness or whatever, which can then be filled in by engagement or whatever. You know, again, it's the Hegelian point that negativity creates the space for, but we don't have time to do it now. So now I, under brutal feminine pressure of the most evil maternal superego. You're not as bad because you are worse. Okay. Good. <laughs> also, actually, what you just finished on, and I, I will forward to that because it's exactly the, you know, that makes women, the women who, you know, the eternal negativity and the lassitude uh, that mm. characterizes the so-called depressed woman is more likely to lead to her be having an ethical subjectivity in the form that you are discussing it than. No, no, I totally agree with you. I think that this is wonderful that the original. The origin of humanity is, for me, a depressed woman. Exactly. Can, which is, yeah, which is why I like so much David Lynch's films. Did you notice that the central problem, for example, what's the central problem of the big classic? But it doesn't work today. It's not as good. At least my experience. Blue Velvet. Isabella Rossellini is a depressed woman, totally immobilized. And I think one crazy way to read that film is that all guys who jump around her, you know, even the evil uh, Dennis Hopper that, you know, that he wants to fuck or whatever, are just ways to, to arouse her, to, to bring her out of her depression, you know. Exactly, behind a cause. Yeah, and <laughs> even the same, that's how I would read uh, Quaron's, uh, it's not such a great film, but it's not bad, uh, uh, Gravity, you know, that at the, I haven't seen it, my God, Barbarian, whatever, yeah, 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 at a, at a, at a, if you saw the movie, you remember how when she, Sandra Bullock, is ready to die, already in a suicidal mood, depression, then the idiot with rabbit teeth, uh, George Clooney, uh, <laughs> appears. And, and I don't think this is an anti-feminist moment. Some stupid feminists noted two things. No, The first is that, uh, is that nonetheless, she needs a man to kick her out. Uh -huh. And the second thing they noted, they noticed is that, uh, is that, this is an interesting, uh, I don't know what would be the explanation, how uh, gravity follows the line of alien and all those where, okay, we have, the woman is the only survivor in a catastrophe, but her name is always half black, you know, it's Ryan, her name is Ryan in the film. <laughs> it's the same as Ripley or what in Alien, you know, that the woman nonetheless must have a masculine name, but I, I did I already use this the first day on Monday here? What James Shamos told me, my friend for, from uh, Focus Pictures, who was now fired, of course. But, uh, he, no, no, he told me that. Didn't I already tell you this wonderful detail about gravity? Namely, how her trauma, which justifies her doubts, is that her child was, was killed in an accident when he was four years old in, a, in school. 
in a school courtyard, whatever. Well, the problem is that uh, uh, in the United States, uh, children at four don't go to school, no? And strictly, I checked with Americans, if you go to, uh, if you go to some kindergarten, you never call it school, no? So I claim it's a subtle uh, hint that that traumatic event is really a screen fantasy, no? It's a trap. It's not that, you know, it's not this, oh, she must have some horrible, traumatic experience, whatever. It's the materiality of the signifier, materiality of the appearance again. Yeah. This way. yeah. Anyway, okay. I think there's lots of people who might yeah. want to trust this. Uh, <laughs> James, is it James? I don't know. Ah, no, yeah, I hate this. This is this managerial human capitalism, you know, okay, when the boss there. pretends to know your name and all that bullshit, you know, like, so that he can then e exploit you even more and... Actually, we both taught him, so I hope you know his name as well. She didn't even get he it. He was in our Caleb. Can you... Okay, you ask your question now and... Okay, so today, uh, you, yeah, right at the end, you mentioned the, sort of the, the space of the sort of non-subject, in a way, coming first. And then on Wednesday, you also spoke about um, the problem of, like, White universalism and a problem and a problem of like individualization. And I wonder if you want to go to the end, which is one of your favourite phrases. Like, um, is it not in a way time to, to to be a bit more critical of, of the function that psychoanalysis plays there? Um, because for me, psychoanalysis can't really ever drop the subject. Cannot cannot drop the subject and also is very individualizing and ultimately does always relate back to some kind of pathologizing, even <coughs> even the most sort of radical Lacanian has always come, it, it, it does come back to some kind of individual subjectivity, so I wonder, I see, I see. I wonder is that, and you also try to, you try to say that you were trying to be more systematic and I wonder is there is there conflict there? Is that to me that's not very systematic. There's this inconsistency there. I don't think it's just a simple parallel. Okay, uh, can I? Brief? I will really sure, try sure. to be brief. Uh, it's a nice question, but let me answer it in this way. First problem here is uh, no, 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 sorry. What did I say? Okay, no, no, I don't get that. No, no. Uh, uh, the the first point would be here the difference between subject and individual. Like, I don't follow here quite, but you, for him, the formula is a simple one. Subject is not an individual category. Subject is not only can be, but even as a rule, is a collective subject, no? For him, for example, the subject of the political process is organization, group, people, not, not an individual. Uh, what, but uh, first about psychoanalysis. Uh, my point here would have been that, nonetheless, for reasons that I cannot develop now, I don't accept. First, I totally agree with you that there are ways how leftists refer to psychoanalysis for help, which are mystifying and false. My favorite example, maybe you know it, is I Notice how many uh, leftists love psychoanalysis. Why? Because it enables them to stick to their 
theory, you know, like they have a certain theory, there should have been a revolution, working class uh, party, and then if you ask them, but why didn't your stupid revolution occur? Then they say, because of ideological manipulation to understand it, go to psychoanalysis, you know, how we predicted history the way it should have been, we leave to psychoanalysis to explain the manipulations, why it didn't. So here I agree with you. Psychoanalysis absolutely shouldn't be used to do the work of proper social analysis, to fill in the gaps, as it were. And this is also my problem with uh, racism and uh, this uh, politically correct multicultural approach, which precisely, I think, Psychoanalysis, if you talk with a typical American academic, what will be his approach to racism? It's a kind of uh, Julia Kristeva, stranger in us topic. When we hate others, we really project onto them our own repressed traumas, you know. So then it all becomes a problem of, you know, to cure ourselves of racism, let's look deep into ourselves, let's do our deep analysis. Here I do agree with you, but nonetheless, I don't have time to develop this now, but nonetheless, I claim that, and here I agree with Altisser, that uh, psychoanalysis in its scope is not simply a theory of individuality. Psychoanalysis answers something which is for me the crucial question of social theory. Not not in this wrong way, crowd, for, but uh, how I, me as a subject, how do I have to be structured to function as a social subject? What does it mean to be a social, let me give you a simple a social subject. My point is this one, uh, to be a social subject, it's not simply a point of generalization in the sense of I claim something, if I claim it alone, I may be an ultra genius, but probably an idiot. And if it's shared, it's a subject, subject. No, the point is that I myself has, have, have to relate to it as something collective. You know, for example, this would be the single uh, simple example. Uh, a proper social rule is not I don't uh, spit into people's faces because the majority doesn't do it. It must be one doesn't do it, this anonymous one, which means it must be this minimum fetishization that, you know, something becomes socially unacceptable. It's never simply because the majority of individuals doesn't do it. It's because even if the majority does it, but, you know, one doesn't do it. It must be this. So what I claim is that here I wouldn't dismiss psychoanalysis as simply individual pathology. At its best, psychoanalysis, and sorry, but this is how I read, and I agree with you if your point would be that Freud doesn't really do it. It is problematic. But nonetheless, as a program motto, Freud's civilization and its discontent, means that there is something wrong, that psychoanalysis is not 
as we called it when we were young leftists, uh, psychological repair service, you know. No. You break down, you go there to repair you. No, the whole point is that our individual pathologies are symptoms of something which in our society as such is wrong. And in this sense, here I see a parallel justified one between Freud and Marx, in the same way as for Marx, social crisis is not things just didn't function well. Social crisis is the starting point to understand how society really functions. And in the same way for Freud, symptoms are the only way to, yes. the key to understand how our personalities are formed and so on and so on. So again, I know I didn't answer you fully, but my point would have been that I just wouldn't reduce psychoanalysis to ultimately, and because you know, the problem is which of our experiences really are individual. It's not only described by Freud uh, crowd phenomena and so on. You know, it's an immense problem usually not answered about what does it mean individually for you, again, as an individual to function as a part of collective. And I claim that the whole point is that even the utmost of individualism presupposes some kind of uh, collectivity. So again, I would just complicate it a little bit, but I, if your point was, again, let's not use psychoanalysis in this direct, direct way as an ersatz for Marxism and so on, for concrete, then I totally agree with you. Many Marxists today cover up the lack of their own social economic analysis by, you know, oh, capitalist manipulation, whatever, and so on and so on. No, I don't think there is so much manipulation going on. No, there is, don't, but I claim that, that the basic rule, ABC of critique of ideology is that manipulators are always themselves manipulated. I don't believe in this cynical, all-powerful subjects who you know are there, wise, they know how really things are and they are just lying to us. We are all Henry Kissingers here. Mm -hmm. By Henry Kissingers, I mean the ultimate cynic who was totally wrong and stupid in his positive analysis. I know I didn't okay, answer you, but fuck uh, you. Uh, you uh, asked a difficult uh, question. Oh, no, no. We already did it, Tom. We did it in Lacanian axioms. Plus, you know, you could point out again that what is supposedly most intimate and precious to the individual is already taken from the outside. So individual psychology is already social psychology. And Tom, we did do it. I know your name now. <laughs> now ah, yeah. So you oppressed Tom with what did you I call I did, I did, just what? now. Yeah, but Tom now, what was he before? James. <laughs> I know. No, that's like Signorelli. Let's do a little bit of analysis later. <laughs> Two quick questions. Yeah. The first one is in the context of uh, Gerard Bachmann, uh, the absolute I, uh, and the relationship with, uh, it, it, it isn't that from time to time, power has to be actualized. Um, between that, uh, I mean, I mean uh, the gaze, if, if, if it's uh, in all spaces, it doesn't work, but from time to time, it has to, uh, to be punished. So the second question is, uh, on, on Monday and, and Wednesday, uh, you developed uh, in, the, in the first one um, the, the, this new kind of master, and in the second one, um, the superego. But one, it's on the space of the desire, the absolute, mm -hmm. you have this new master, and the other is in the space of jouissance. Could you um, make a relationship between Oh my Again, such a difficult question, but to try to be as short as possible, uh, 
This is, you brought us to this key duality of desire or jouissance, drive, whatever you call the other side. What I'm more and more convinced, that's all I can tell you now, is that, uh, you know, Lacan oscillates often between, sometimes, especially in the 50s, he gives a clear primacy to desire. And then drive is some kind of a vicious superego cycle into which desire gets caught. But the late Lacan tends towards sometimes the opposite view, which is that drive is the original circulation. And then to get out of the deadlock of the drive, uh, law, symbolic law intervenes, and symbolic law transforms drive into desire. Symbolic law imposes castration, the object is lost, and so on and so on. And I just would like to uh, avoid both of these. Uh, why? I will link them to another duality already, I think, uh, half a year ago, developed this, which is, I think, absolutely crucial. And all of my friends, we are now working on this. Did you notice how Lacan, most of his time, at least in the 50s, still his last decade, accepts this standard philosophical topic of the difference between humans and animals, like in nature there is sexual relationship, okay, not harmony, but things function, and then, you know, with human, la femme n'existe pas, there is no sexual, as if the human is non-existent, catastrophe or whatever, uh, a certain gap opens, but I think that the more you read the late Lacan, the more it's clear that he tries to be much more Hegelian on liver Schellingian, and more and more his idea is that it's not that nature is a homeostatic closed circle and then humanity introduces some terrible negativity. Which there, there must have been something wrong already before in nature itself. For example, be careful about something. When Lacan in Seminary 11 introduces the notion of lamella, that eternalized, blah, 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 he says that lamella is produced the moment we get sexualized being, and he explicitly said sexualized also in the animal sense, not just humanity. So, you know, like, he is often trying, and this is for me the most productive Lacan, to say not we have full nature and then ooh, something horrible happens, negativity with humanity, but that in humanity some gap, some imbalance, which is already at work back in nature, explodes. And I didn't lose my thread. In this way, I would have answered you that I don't think that desire drive is an irreducible duality in the sense that that's as far as we can think. I think the effort should be to formulate some kind of discord negativity, whatever, which is, which precedes the duality of desire and drive. I, but these are, I like this question because, my God, this is what I'm doing now in my new book, which is the book of post-coital sadness. That is to say, after you finish a big shitty book over 1,000 pages of Hegel, on Hegel, you have a necessary experience, which is the longer the book is, the more you feel that you, you fail to say what really should have been said, you know. And this is what I'm now uh, working on. You know, it's this wonderful idea which you do find somewhere in Lacan, and I think it can be given a wholly non-theological -mat non materialist reading. This crazy idea from Schelling, Benjamin has it, that human language emerged 
to render able to nature to voice its pain. You know, like that there is something horrible before, so that there is a previous horror already in nature. You know, that humanity is not a catastrophe opening and so on. And that's also incidentally why primitive and maybe wrong as it is, I'm so fascinated by quantum physics. Because I think there you find something weird, which is a phenomenon. They're describing a universe, quantum universe, which is not human, clearly. But at the same time, it's not natural in the sense of how we usually think of nature and so on and so on. That's what fascinates me so much in quantum physics, that you get a universe in which, in a very strange way, things which usually we identify as a specificity of symbolic universe, that potentiality uh, is stronger more than actuality, retroactivity, and so on. All this is at work there, you know. Again, I didn't answer you, but fuck it, that's life, yeah. Sorry. Uh, one at the back, yeah. On Wednesday, I asked you about this assessment. And you think, Shaker, that you will get the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Drive, it is that it is beyond law, guilt, and all that. 
So maybe one way to put it, I'm totally improvising now, maybe it's total bullshit, is that uh, superego is drive, which is already filtered by the symbolic law. Drive already through the screen of symbolic prohibition and so on and so on. But I'm not totally convinced by this. Uh, sorry, but sorry, I, will, uh, I have some obligations I will drop, so please. Let's now introduce some dynamic into I it. I want to ask them as well, but they're sort of talking about. Uh, fuck them. <laughs> okay, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Can I ask a quick question about? I mean, you spend the entire lecture um, uh, telling us the bits that Althusser didn't see. After? Uh, that Althusser didn't, didn't yeah, yeah. Uh, see, and then you finish very briefly on on Kant by pointing out that Kant did appreciate. <laughs> the materiality of appearances that yeah, I yeah, then, okay? yeah. uh, And then I thought, oh my god, so that means that, you know, then you pointed out that the politically correct uh, uh, ideology cannot work because you actually have to be, you cannot be told to do it. Mm -hmm. So even when you're pretending, because mm -hmm. you're, so how do we all become Kant, basically? How do we find a space of freedom that can't appreciate it, but have to it, uh, no, can't appreciate it and have to it and mm -hmm. appreciate it, how do we find that domain of freedom if we are not Kant or even Kantian? I mean, what if, you know... But why not? Sorry, it won't sense. My point was very naive that we practically are, we all play this game of, you know, pretending that we are better than we are and so, so on. So what is wrong with being told by the politically correct crowd? Uh, I mean, I've agreed with you about political yeah, yeah. up till now, and then you bring this in and you tell me that actually pretending uh, if, if, I, if I were racist, for instance. Okay, because I think that political correctness, basically, maybe I'm wrong, uh -huh. uh, it's precisely what I was developing uh, two days ago, this eternal superego examination. But how do you know that that remark wasn't uh, racist okay. and so on and so on? It, because, you know, the Kantian answer would have been, Okay, maybe it was racist, but be decent and pretend that you are not a racist, you know. Okay. And this, precisely, this space for sincere lies, for pretending, the, the, the Kantian answer is, okay, maybe you were a racist, but pretend that you are not, and then maybe you will not be a racist, you know. But, but this eternal self-probing, you know, oh, the way I looked at you, was there something evil in it or whatever, you know, that it's, it, this yeah. is not the way. Okay. Because you know why it's not the way? Again, because precisely it's in the bad superego sense endlessly self-reproducing it, you know. It's like debt, what I say. The goal of superego in debt okay. is not for you to repay the debt, but to remain forever indebted. So I pretend to pretend, but uh, maintaining my space... But there is nothing mystical not in it. We, we do agree. this all the time. <laughs> Sorry to tell that. I noticed with people... It's my daily experience, maybe I live in some perverted society, of how people, you know, they think they are evil, they do something out of politeness, and then when you corner them, push them into a corner, they opt politeness. Yeah. They are forced yeah. to admit that yeah. this is for me the most charming moment. Yeah. You pretend that something is just a pretend, I don't mean it seriously, yeah. But you are not aware that really you are taking it seriously. Okay, but for me, this seems to rehabilitate a bit of the dreaded and annoying political correctness because that's what it makes us do. Even when we are, if, if we were racist, we are being told don't be racist on the surface. And 
And therefore, then we start. I see. I see now your point. But no, 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 no. I think that precisely. Okay, we can go into it. I'm not sure it really works like that because I think that precisely what in Kant you don't find again is this superego dimension of eternal of eternal self questioning. You know, like is this the right way to do? Should I address you like this, like that, and so on and so on? My idea, as I already said, it answering that fuck of question. My idea of true politeness is that. You know, like what Grace Kelly, whom I don't like sexually, but she said once <laughs> when she was when she, when she was asked uh, uh, like by some friend, I read this in a biography of her, like about participating in some orgies and how can you do this? You are a lady. She said a lady does everything, including orgies, but she does it like a lady. You know, like <laughs> a polite man doesn't mean you are not vulgar. There is a way to be vulgar in a polite way. You know, okay, right. now there's a cue now. Yes? Um, I find it really interesting how you use both Lacan and Marx to analyze social reality, especially. Uh, how I expose or oppose? I have youth, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, especially when, when it has been proven sometimes that it is a problematic relationship since yes. they have different methods and so on. I just wanted to know if this combination of both Lacanian psychoanalysis and Marxist political economy. Is it just spontaneous, or do you believe that a systematic combination of both can actually be achieved? Uh, what do I mean by this? Of course, first, I'm not a standard Marxist. I clearly, and I've written about it, I clearly see a limitation in Marx. I think, I agree with Lacan, that there is, in some sense, a basic alienation which should be admitted, but it's not the Marxian alienation. It's an even, you know, Marx has this traditional notion of alienation. It means it's not me, an alienated force is controlling me, market, destiny, whatever. Uh, Lacan's answer is that this type of alienation is already a cover-up. The point is that, yes, you don't control it, but there is no other who also controls it, because it's even worse. Okay, let's know what I'm saying to you is that so on the one hand, and I elaborated systematically a whole series of points where clearly Marx is limited. But what is so interesting, and uh, a guy from our Lacanian gang in Slovenia, Samo Tomšić, did a book, Marx and Lacan, now, where he went, it will be translated into English, we will try to push it, 300 pages, he goes in detail through all Lacan's statements of Marx and shows how, uh, you know, there is one Lacan of the 50s, the first big Lacan, symbolic order, all that bullshit. And then you have the Lacan of the 60s, 70s, let's call it the Lacan of discourses, reasons, and so on, how Marx systematically returns in this Lacan. Uh, I, for example, he even opposes it how Lacan's formula for the 50s is unconscious is structured like a language. In the 70s, Lacan says the unconscious is political, mm-hmm. politics and so on. And all the reference to this new role of objectita, of objects mole, which is explicitly linked to capital and so on and so on. So it's a much more, much more subtle questioning. Of course, this Marx is no longer the old Marx. But nonetheless, Lacan makes it clear when he says, for example, and in a very precise way he means it, that Marx invented the symptom. 
and so on and so on. So what I'm claiming is that, no, it's not that I am playing some eccentric way, let's bring them together. It can be proven how central the reference to Marx, it's a critical reference, but it is an absolutely crucial reference. And I agree with you, if this was your implication, there are big problems here. Like, of course, we cannot sustain simply Marxist vision of communist revolution. Here, Altisser gave a wonderful, I think he was fundamentally correct, he claimed that the standard Marx, Marxist of Marx view of communist society is, you know, Marxist opposition between uh, uh, forces of production and relations of production in the sense of relations within which I am caught in a, that, to cut it short, Marx's vision of communism is forces of production without relations of production. That, you know, we just consciously relate to each other, but there is no a priori network of relations of production which controls us and so on and so on. So things get complicated here. But again, what can be proven, I claim, nonetheless, it's not only, it's again, on the one hand, how often systematically Lacan refers to Marx and on the opposite hand, this is what always fascinates me, if you read through Lacan, Marx, what wonderful places, paradoxes you discover. For example, when in a passage that I often quote, uh, Marx describes that rule of the party of order in France, uh, 48th revolution, and he says how, you know, it's an impossible republicans as uni uh, royalism in general combination, and he uses the term literally of, the idea is that law of order are royalists who pretend, who pretend to be republicans, but they are really royalists, but they endlessly postpone uh, actualizing their royalist pretensions. And then Marx uses a wonderful term, the, the uh, 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 genus, the enjoyment of endless postponing, and so on, you know. No, no, you find, sorry? Procrastination. Procrastination, yeah, it's wonderful. Or another, I mean, there are so many, uh, there are so many real wonders. You or, for example, now I find a wonderful, it's pure theory of structure, where Marx says that the problem of French society was that one class was doing what, what the, the bourgeois should have been doing, the middle class was doing, what the middle class had to be doing, should have been doing, working class is doing, you know? It's this wonderful theory of we have social structure, we have elements, but as if it gets shifted and so on. And then, of course, the wonderful structural problem is who then does what the working class should be doing? And here Marx's genius comes. His point is the military. Uh, you know, no, 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 sorry, not in the sense the army is our real <laughs> revolutionary force. But in the simple sense that the working class should have been doing revolution. Yeah. And that Napoleon's formula was, it's a wonderful formula, even liberals like Francois Furet were fascinated by it. When Marx says that Napoleon saw that since socially you cannot go further with revolution, the only way to continue revolution is to, to transpose it into external war, you know. 
The only way to keep evolutionary dynamic is to do that. So again, I think it's a wonderful topic if you read Marx through Freud, Hegel, how many of this, especially, I would say, not only in Capital, but in his analysis of uh, 48, all of them revolution, plus, again, my eternal motive. I simply still don't get it how people didn't know this earlier. How much more complex, and I'll share it here, it's totally stupid. How much more complex Marxist theory of fetishism it is. Again, they don't see that fetishism is not things are really like that, but we are stupid, we misperceive it. No. The point of Marxist theory of fetishism is we know how things really are, but it's in our reality that we follow the fantasy, the illusion. No, it's a wonderful reversal, more actual than ever today. Marx is not saying, Marx is not an idiot who says reality is out there, we don't see the way it is, we live in illusions. No, Marx says we pretend to be rational, but we don't see illusions which structure our reality itself. Yeah. Here we have what Lacan is saying, reality is structured like a fantasy and so on and so on. Listen, can we slowly stop and fuck democracy? I'm sorry, but I have to run. My God, I have problems. I will be back like Terminator said when he disappeared. I will be back and so on. Uh, you know who is my new sex, sex symbol? Did you watch the movies? This nice girl, Brett Marling. Did you see the East, the other Earth and so on? This is progressive Hollywood today, and so on. Well, we have time to thank you, even though it's been... No, I don't give you the time to thank you. No. Oh, thank you. Sorry?